The Strange Case of Cain and Abel. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure, proudly produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And today we're going to be talking about Cain and Abel as we study through the book of Genesis. Now this is a careful examination where we look at the built-in morality in these ancient stories. And again, there's so much truth in them and they tell us so much about who we are. And there are those things which are truer than truth itself, and it's one of those things which is unbelievable if you'll just spend some time with it. A lot of people want to write off Genesis 1 through 11. They say, oh, those are old oral traditions, but these are beautiful things which we should not go by too quickly at all. So let's talk about Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel remind us of two paths, the righteous and the wicked. Cain is warned that he must rule over evil. And now that's a particular thing. You have to rule over it because it is crouching after him like a predatory animal. And you see, evil and sin, they really are interesting things. You can't easily eradicate them. You can't just kill it off. But instead, you have to rule over them. This is something which takes a huge conscious effort. Sin and wickedness must be taken in responsibility. See, if you just kind of kill something off, then it's not really in your responsibility anymore. You actually have to take responsibility in caring for them. You can't give it too much freedom. You can't let it be in the decision-making center. And you must guard it with continual effort and responsibility. So we're going to study Cain and Abel. And I've got to say from the beginning of this, this reminds me so much of when we were in Zechariah, the story where you see the, the vision from the angel where there's a, a woman who is sinning iniquity incarnate and she's thrown in a basket and two other godly women with wings, they come down, they pick her up, they carry and put her in a house that's outside of Jerusalem. It's back towards Babylon and they seal it up like it's a prison. Do you remember this when we were talking about this, Anthony? Yep, Exactly. Uh, and it, it does mirror this idea of having to actively rule over sin very well. Yeah, it's something where you've got to actually keep guard over it. It takes continual responsibility. And so as we study the story of Cain and Abel, the best complimentary text that I can give you, aside from that reference I just gave you in Zechariah, if you go and read through there and you find that with the, the sin and equity being put in a basket and they put a lid on it and they seal it away, but also The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson is one of the best books that goes along with this. Now, I know I talk a lot about things like H.G. Wells or maybe even Jules Verne. I think the Jules Verne stuff is really good. Robert Louis Stevenson, you can tell that he's trying to be rather theological when he does this. And um, it's very different from Treasure Island, one of his other books. But uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you can sit through it, it actually tells you a lot about the two natures that Cain and Abel embody. Because while many people may consider like God and the devil two sides of the same coin, something like Two-Face, that's really not a good understanding of, of good and evil. That doesn't work very well. However, when you actually spend some time with Cain and Abel, this is a scenario where it really does work a lot more like Two-Face. Anthony, what, what do you think about that? Uh, in regards to Cain and Abel, I think definitely yeah, it, it it is closer to um, rather than like some of us are Cain's and some of us are Abel's. It is more like we each have Cain and Abel within us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have to rule over the Cainliness that we have, our sinfulness. Well, I mean, even to that point, they're the same gene pool. They're, it's like me and my brother. We're extraordinarily similar. Anybody who knows Derek would know that, you know. There are many people who, who can't tell us apart on the phone. When we were younger, people couldn't tell us apart in person a lot. I'm a little bit um, different in looks than him, but we're still very, very similar people. And that's really where Cain and Abel are. They're the same gene pool. They're basically two different versions of the same human potential, 
And yet they've split in totally different directions. One has gone a more righteous pathway, though they're not righteousness itself. And the other has gone a wicked pathway, though he too is not wickedness itself. And that's really where we find here these these pools that we have, the pathway of righteousness, the pathway of, of wickedness. So let's get into this and have a little bit of fun talking about this. So as stated earlier, if you have read the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it is a fascinating book. And... I don't want to give too many spoilers away from the book, but that's going to happen in this. So if you want to read the book and don't want any spoilers, now's a a good time to leave. But Jekyll, he really does find that he wants to separate evil, but it comes at a really great cost. And a lot of times people don't realize this is one of the, the main themes in the book. He's trying to create a way of removing one's responsibility for their own sinful side. And now you might say he's trying to just get rid of wickedness himself, but he's trying to take the the responsibility and place it outside of himself. And that's something which can be a little bit difficult to, to grasp because a lot of times we want us to just say it's cutting off evil. But again, you really can't do that. And we find that out throughout history. Whenever there are evil forces, you know, they crop up time and time again. It's not so easy to eradicate evil. Well, anyways, Dr. Jekyll in the book he really does want to have something which will improve life. He realizes that humans, they have these two natures. He takes it really in a more dualist perspective where there is two dual natures, but realistically, when we look at the world, it's almost like two ends of a spectrum that are trying to pull us in different directions. We can go towards righteousness or we can go towards the, the void, the wickedness, the nothingness, which is just evil. And Dr. Jekyll, he's trying to create something. And the best illustration I've had for this is if you can imagine a city that has a, someone who's committed a murder within the city. Now, in a lot of places, we build things like um, prisons or other institutions where you might put a murder. But imagine if instead of putting the, the person who committed a murder in prison, you just threw them out of the city and locked the gates. You know, they're going to roam around. They're probably going to devise some other evil plan. They're, they're going to be thinking of another way that they can per- perpetuate another murder. And they're going to to be hunting for that if it's their bend. But you don't really know what they're doing. You don't have a lot of control. Again, if you're inside the city and you've you've shut off connection with them, you have no idea what they're up to. You can't really control them. Of course, the alternative is, is you can actually take someone who's committed a murder and put a guard over them, you know, put them in a jail or a prison or somewhere where you can watch them closely. And that way you can, you know, be in tune with their actions to to watch over them. And that's really how evil is. You can't just throw it out and give it too much freedom, which is what Jekyll is really doing in the book. He has created an alternate version of himself. And if you you understand, Edward Hyde is not as well-developed as Jekyll. He looks much younger. His body is physically shorter. He looks malnourished. And everyone that sees him, they say there's some sort of deformity about this. There's some sort of deformity about about the man, even though they can't figure out what it is. He's incredibly hideous and ugly, but there's no bodily feature that they can point to that says that. But that ultimately comes back to the fact that his soul itself is corrupted. And this is what we find with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, they're two brothers. They're two sides of the gene pool, but yet they are bent in very different ways. Now, in the next coming sermons and messages and podcasts that we have, we are going to be talking more about the sacrifice of Cain and Abel. You know, Anthony's going to be delivering a bit on what actually happens when when Cain starts to succumb to the sin. But when you just look at them from the very beginning, there are two brothers. Theoretically, they should have a very similar pathway in life. They come from the same family. They have the same 
environment around them. They have the same parents. So you would think that their trajectory is similar, but yet they are bent in wildly different ways. And we find this even when you examine the story of Cain and Abel. It's one of those things where every time I've read the story of Cain and Abel, it has appeared to me that the reason why God is displeased with Cain's sacrifices, it's one that he hasn't ever worked for, where his brother Abel is actually sacrificing something which is valuable. It's basically his first dollar. Um, when we were talking about this in Sunday school, somebody made a reference to SpongeBob with the, the me first dollar episode where Mr. Krabs is always upset about that. Did, did you, have you seen that episode of, of SpongeBob, Anthony? Are you familiar with that? Yes, I have seen it before. Well, that's kind of what Abel is sacrificing. Um, me first dollar. He's got the first one he's given. Whereas Abel, or excuse me, Cain, he's just kind of going out and getting something he didn't work for to give. Now, it does say that Cain is one who tills the ground, but there's not really a clear indication that he's actually giving something valuable for himself, where he's actually just kind of picking some things here and there. And God appreciates the genuine sacrifice of Abel, where Cain's is more of a, a cheap last minute sacrifice. But this is where the bend begins. Whenever we try to, to have evil not guarded, it comes to consume. Anthony, what do you think about evil being a predatory animal? I know you had mentioned some things about it crouching there. I do think it's interesting. This is the first place that we see sin in Genesis being mentioned explicitly. And its first comparison is to a predatory animal. Um, and I think there is a pretty constant, te pretty constant theme throughout the Bible of sin wanting to devour you, of sin wanting to overcome you, and you having to overcome sin. Yeah. And I think that the reason why that is would definitely be in part because your life is in danger from sin. And overcoming it is very, very analogous to violence. You know, it is a rigorous, rigorous task to overcome sin. And I think that those are um, some pretty good reasons why we might be able to uh, understand why sin is being compared to a predatory animal. Yeah, and even when you go back to the story of Adam and Eve, which again, the language of evil and the language of sin is a little bit different with Adam and Eve. It's not like it is now with Cain and Abel. But even the, the crafty creature, which a lot of times people will equate that with Satan or the devil, the diabolical one, I, I don't see that specifically in the story. I'm not saying that it's not either. I just don't think that the story spends a lot of time carrying one way or another. It's telling you the serpent, the crafty one, it is a predator. You know, snakes, they're, they're predatory. And if you've ever seen a snake eat something, it is unmistakably a predator. But sin is very much like a monster. You can't easily kill it either. I know when I was going over some, some show prep for this today with Anthony, and we were debating this, this analogy where you've got a city and you've got somebody murdering in there. He was like, well, does, it really, does that analogy really work? Why can't you just kill the murderer? And I don't know if Anthony remembers the, the resolution of that, what the problem is with killing the murderer is, but you know, evil, it crops back up. It is like a monster. It'll just come back from the dead. And the big thing that you find, especially if you read something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and as well in Cain and Abel, is you actually have to have responsibility over the sin, responsibility over the evil. Dr. Jekyll, he always says, well, I've got the one want that every man has. I can be an upstanding, righteous man, and yet somebody is out to do my bidding. If there's someone I don't like, he can go kill him. If he 
What's this other crime committed? Well, I've got my, my right-hand man who can go do it, and he doesn't even exist. He's not even someone who's real. When I'm Jekyll, I'm here, no one on this earth is ever going to find the body of Edward Hyde because he's transformed back into me. He realizes he's completely removed himself from the responsibility of his own evil actions. Now, that sounds pretty good on the front end, but it actually turns out to be problematic pretty quickly because it comes at the price of the soul. Ultimately, Mr. Hyde, he wants to kill Dr. Jekyll, even though throughout the book there's this hint and there's this suggestion that, that Dr. Jekyll, he realizes that, it, that Edward Hyde wants to kill him, but he's like a son, an indifferent son that has a lot of resentment for his father, that he basically says the only reason I'm keeping you alive is because it may do something bad to me in the end if I, if I kill you. But of course, that only lasts for a moment because the, the wickedness of Hyde is like all things evil. It just wants to kill and destroy, and it really doesn't have a lot of rhyme and reason. But with Cain and Abel, you see the exact same thing. It's not something which is so different. This evil that wants to consume, what is it that it wants, Anthony? If we remember from the story of Genesis, what does evil want? If we read carefully, when the Lord God comes and gives a warning to Cain. Well, I mean, uh, I suppose it's wanting to consume you. Yeah, it wants you. And actually, let me read that a little bit. Um, actually, I'm going to read a little bit throughout the story of Genesis. Let me begin in, um, I want to start with this, the actual offering and the sacrifice they bring. So we're going to start in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord God had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. All right, again, if you read that carefully, we see Abel is bringing the firstborn of his flock, where it just shows Cain bringing fruit of the ground. And I've read this in a lot of translations. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I do not profess to be one. Much better with Greek than I am with Hebrew. But I have never found any clear indication that the offering that Cain brings is actually of his own work, even though he is someone who tills the ground. And I've never seen any clear indication that this is the best of his crop, where you do see clear indication with Abel that he's bringing the best of his own work. I've never seen the same thing with Abel, so there's a difference there. But if we go just a few more verses down, let me read into where we actually see evil. And this is verse 6, and the Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires for you. And that's the big takeaway from this. Sin, it desires you. Evil desires you. It's interesting because while Cain does kill his brother, God doesn't come say it wants your brother dead. No, it wants you. It's going to get you to kill your brother, but ultimately it has you. See, you have to rule over it. You can't just kill it off because it'll come back. It's, it's a monster. But you have to rule over it. You have to keep it in prison. Anthony, what are your thoughts? Um, if you come at the problem of Cain's sacrifice from the perspective of faith-seeking understanding uh, instead of vice versa, understanding and under, understanding seeking faith, you can kind of see something interesting with the differences between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice. Cain's sacrifice, it isn't really explicitly mentioned why it is bad. 
and I don't need I don't even think there's any indicators other than that God did not have regard for Cain's sacrifice for why it was bad explicitly. But we do see indicators for why Abel's was good. And I think something that's interesting about that is that sometimes the will of God doesn't necessarily make sense to us. And so perhaps it was even that Cain was making a sacrifice that he thought to be acceptable, which it wouldn't make much sense to make a sacrifice that you knew wouldn't be expect be acceptable. And then also, you know, to be angry and resentful about the sacrifice that you knew wasn't going to be acceptable anyways afterwards, that wouldn't really make sense. So it does make sense that Cain would have expected his sacrifice to be acceptable, and then it wasn't. And so that's what I think is interesting about, there is no justification for why Cain's um, sacrifice was unacceptable. It was just that it was not the will of God. Well, and I, I think sometimes I, that's how it is. I don't, um, wanna, I don't know. And, th and people do have different opinions on this. I, I've never read it and got that sense i know it doesn't explicitly say this is why it's there but i've never thought it was arbitrary in the sense that it was arbitrarily god's will and i mean it's fine that we have a, a different take on this but i've always read it as there is a standard and god says well this is good it was he was offering the firstborn of his stuff and you've just kind of brought some stuff of the ground it's not even your best no and i i think i actually can totally agree with you i don't think it's reasonless at all i don't think it's arbitrary i think that we being humanity Sometimes our understandings are aligned wrong, and at times we have to take a step back and say, rather than being able to have our own justification, we have faith to, tr to just trust the will of God whenever we don't understand. Yeah. And that's sort of why I started this out saying faith-seeking understanding. I don't think God's irrational, but I think sometimes to people, he can be unrational simply because um, we well, don't have it our may be that lined it's up not properly. People have their truth as opposed to the truth, and they want God to conform to their truth or yeah, their exactly. rationale. And if you have faith, then your understanding of the world can conform to God rather yeah. than vice versa. And then you're actually going to have a good understanding of the world, and you're going to be able to live out and make the right sacrifices like Abel does, rather than make sacrifices that only you think are acceptable, like Cain. And then yeah. if you never do have faith for understanding if, if instead you want the world to conform to your understanding then you're going to be resentful and you're going to um basically commit evil acts and ruin your life like cain well it, it leads certainly very quickly to resent when when you think that your standard is at the, the top of the totem pole and just reality doesn't match up to that and that, that's one of the, the beautiful things about saying, from Anthony's perspective, saying we're going to have faith in a, a higher place on the totem pole. And again, this is all built into Genesis, this idea that people, Adam and Eve, you know, the, the, that first couple, they're somewhere in the middle of the hierarchy. God is at the top, they're in the middle, and then there's the rest of creation that they are to have dominion over, or the rest of, of the earth that they have dominion over, but there's other elements of creation, heavens, the, the very essence of good and virtue itself are above them. But when it comes to, to Cain, he really does have this devolution into resent because he looks at his brother and he, he has his own standard, he has his own world, and he says, I want this to reign supreme. I don't want to have to conform to anything outside of me. I just want to, to fester in this. And it, it's very bad. And this really is something that we, we learn, and it's, it's told to us time and time again. It, it does take a little bit of, of time to be specific in it because you can't just cut off evil. Cain, he can't just cut that away. And if you've ever been mad at someone, 
If you've ever got into like an argument, it's really hard to just cut that off. Like there's always a temptation to say something or to take stuff, an extra step. I know lately we've talked a lot about advice for social media. Whenever you see something online that's taunting you, it's really hard to, to hold back. Uh, it just is. But even on a broader spectrum, whenever people start doing things which are evil, once you start allowing that wickedness to have strength, you know, you start to justify it in your mind. You start to say, well, I'm not responsible for that. I, I was The temptation was there. I couldn't help myself. People do all sorts of things. And they become a lot like Dr. Jekyll where he says, you know, I'm not responsible for anything Edward Hyde does, even though he's the man responsible for creating the, the pathway of, of bringing Hyde even into existence, if you could call it existence. He's only temporarily there. In the end, Dr. Jekyll is responsible for, for Edward Hyde. And not only that, Edward Hyde is ultimately responsible for Jekyll's death because that's what happens when you give power to evil. Again, it's a lot of times something which is underdeveloped. It, it's something where you say, well, I'll, I'll have an outlet for a desire here. And even Dr. Jekyll in the book, he says, you know, I'll let Hyde do a thing here, here, and here. But Edward Hyde, he wants to be out more and more. He wants to be the one controlling. He's not happy just to, to live out a desire here and there. He wants to be perpetually in, increasing his amount of wickedness, increasing his sin. As, as stated in the book, really there's two natures. There's one which is fettered by various forms of religious abstinence where you're abstaining from your desires. You're abstaining from the levels of wickedness that you could indulge in. And the other side is that which has no checks at all. If you want to go out and kill someone, you want to stomp um, a child and beat them with a cane, which is the first scene you see Mr. Hyde doing in the book, you know, that's that's what you do. And you have no remorse about it because you're, you're giving into that and you're letting it grow. But you must, if you do not want to live this way, if you do not want to have the, the two natures fighting, the side of life, which is bent towards the carnal nature, when must look to God, they must call Christ to come to, into their life and have the sanctifying power of Christ move them away from that. But you must realize that the carnal nature, it is something which must be kept in check. You can't just throw it out and ignore it. You can't remove it from your realm of responsibility. You can't just try to, to you know, create a potion that, that cuts it off and lets it do its separate thing. You have to take some responsibility and energy and make sure that it is contained. So we're going to go ahead and start wrapping things up there. Anthony, do you have any final thoughts on this topic before we, we let our audience go? Nope. You good? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, wasn't that fun? I think uh, maybe I, I'd like to add at the, just, you know, for myself, I do think God is rational for sure. <laughs> and I think that his kingdom is rational as well. Um, I just think whenever we try to come to the table with our own rationality and try to conform the kingdom of God to that, then we're starting with the wrong presuppositions. And, uh, you know, that leads to bad places. Well, I mean, there can be a lot of stuff that is rational, but yet we can't rationalize it. Take yeah, that makes like, sense as well. Like playing music. Like, I know I've spent a good portion of my life, like, learning the piano and learning more and more. You, you start off with, like, a simple piece when you're, like, five, and, you know, it, it, you're maybe just working with the black keys, and it seems difficult but then, you know, 20 years later, you're doing something like, I don't know, Maurice Ravel's uh, piano um, concerto or something like that. And you, you've got something which is quite complex and it makes sense to you now. You can read a really big piece of music, whereas at like a five-year-old, you're like, whoa, this just blows me away. You understand that it's mechanical and that it can be done, but it takes you a while to get there. 
Yeah, and that's sort of what I like about that metaphor too. Um, I don't think that the kingdom of God is totally outside the reaches of um, understandability. I just think that sometimes we have to take a step back and say, right now we don't understand it, but we're yeah. going to trust it. Yeah, and we're going to move towards the call that God has placed in our lives. Yep. Well, wrapping things up, this is Kingdom of the Logos, and we are clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. But if you would like to support us, there are a lot of ways you can do that. We are trying to grow our program, and I know this is probably the point where everybody tunes out. But it would help us so much if you subscribe to our channel. Again, we're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. Just like and follow. Grabbing a link to share with your friends, your family, that would do so much for us. Again, we're not meaning to pull anyone away from their church. And we look weird. We kind of look like we're in like a post-Soviet like submarine or something like that. The way the lights work with the red, it looks weird like it's all rusty. It doesn't look like that in real life, but crazy. And I know you see the way we're, we're dressed and things. It is a bit bizarre, but we are proudly ministers sharing the gospel in the world where we're loved to be a part of the church of the Nazarene. If you'd like to share our content with a link, we would so much appreciate that. If you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. You can download our free podcast and take them anywhere you would like. And again, we're just here to supplement your Christian walk. So with that, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments you'd like to talk with one of us, please reach out. We, we love to talk with people. And on that note, God love you and have a blessed day.